0: Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, and welcome to Speak Up. This is Nadia, and today I'm coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people and the Boon Boon Wurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. The vast majority of us spend at least a little bit of our lives on social media. We send updates when life events happen, we share pictures of things that resonate with us and we learn about what's happening in the world around us. But integrating social media into our intervention when we're supporting others isn't something that's always at the forefront of our minds. Today we are joined by Dr. Melissa Brunner to discuss how involving social media in our interventions can be meaningful
1: to service users.
0: Hi, Liz. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you. I'm joining you from unceded lands of the Gadigal people on the Aura Nation, where University of Sydney now stands.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Um, So it's nice to see that there has been some recent adaptations of social media to think a little bit more about some service users that need more accessibility. So I'm thinking about things like um, hashtags that are using capitals in different ways so that we can read them a bit easier, and then also using things like um, image descriptions for people that are using screen readers so that they can they can have an understanding of what pictures are as well. Could we start out a little bit by telling us some of the other barriers that are still in existent for people when they're using social media and the internet generally?
1: Yeah. Um, It's really nice to see that accessibility of posts is becoming a little bit more mainstream. So as you said, image descriptions or alt text just Mm -hmm. um, on pictures and capitalising hashtags, they're really great examples of that. In terms of other barriers or challenges in using social media, there's actually heaps and heaps. (laughs) Um, You know, so some people might have physical barriers. So, you know, we've spoken about a person's vision and maybe using screen readers, but they may have difficulty with hand mobility or fine motor control or not be able to actually even just get to their device independently and they might need someone to support them to do that. Um, Other people just might actually not have devices or access to reliable internet. Uh, I work predominantly with people who've had a brain injury, and often they have lots of difficulties relating to their cognitive communication skills. And so, um, as you can imagine, these changes actually really affect their in-person interactions, but they also influence their online interactions. So... Um, For example, if someone has difficulties with attention and they might get distracted really easily in social media, they might start responding to someone, but they get distracted and they will send like an incomplete message or a message that doesn't make sense. Very relatable, Um, yeah. (laughs) yeah. Uh, If um, someone has difficulties controlling their emotions and, and managing their feelings, they may get really overloaded Um, with all of the information that can come through on your timeline in social media, or they might get really overwhelmed with really negative or sad feelings in response to things that are happening in the world. So, you know, for example, there's lots in my timeline at the moment about floods and earthquakes. Mm. Um, In terms of um, self-monitoring, some people may not be aware of what they're posting. So they might actually post and message others really frequently and have difficulty recognising when there might be breakdown in communication on social media and they may not pick up on those cues, which can be harder online than in person. Um, They might also just have a bit of trouble in controlling their impulses and, and stopping before they act. So they could just accept any friend request, um, follow loads and loads of people or comment on something before thinking about what they're really saying or the repercussions of saying something in that space, Um, or they might overshare or be really highly dominant in conversations. And so um, during my PhD work, I actually identified five different factors that really influence how People use social media after a brain injury. And sometimes these are barriers and sometimes they're actually facilitators. So I kind of like to look at the positives of things (laughs) as well. Um, But the first factor to consider is uh, this idea of purpose. So it's really important to consider like an individual person's motivation and purpose in using social media. So they might want to practice their communication or just connect with other people, Um, they could be thinking about developing a new self-identity after their injury or, you know, they may just want to fill in time like everyone else does, right? Um, And then the second factor is more about knowledge and experience. Uh, So that's relating to not only the person with a brain injury but also the people around them. Mm -hmm. And so I've spoken about some of the barriers that individuals might experience after their brain injury but clinicians and families and friends can also find it really hard to support people to use social media because their own experiences and abilities and confidence all influence how they might support someone to use it as well Um, the third factor is caution and you know it's really critical to be aware of the risks that are associated with using social media and really how to navigate those risks. And, you know, scams are a really big part of that. Uh, The fourth factor is the networks of people, and this could be family or friends or rehab clinicians. Um, And, you know, we can all provide like an online network of communication partners essentially, and that can really increase opportunities for success in online spaces. And the final fifth concept of factors is really around that idea of support. And so it's all of those different structures that can influence success or failure um, in social media and really thinking about practical supports and resources. Um, So I kind of look at all of these five factors as creating a bit of an evidence-based framework for us to think about what needs to be addressed when we might be thinking about incorporating social media goals into rehabilitation, for example.
0: Yeah, and I'd really like to pick up on some of the things that you've mentioned there, particularly around caution, because I think a lot of people, when they see some of that behaviour that perhaps is a little bit um, uninhibited or spontaneous, a lot of people will possibly lean towards the I don't think social media is a safe place for you and so sometimes there's conversations about putting things like parental locks on that for an adult or even for a teen that potentially you know is going to grow into those sorts of things and and rather than teaching the how do we keep you safe skills it's a little bit of this is a bit too too scary and we would rather back away from it can you talk a little bit more about some of those things
1: yeah it's a really tricky space to navigate because there's lots of concerns about some very real or maybe perceived risks of using social media. Um, I mean, I've obviously done some research around this in (laughs) the brain injury rehab space, right? Um, But it's very applicable to, you know, everyone and in particular, the particular types of people that we might work in from a speech pathology perspective. So... um, I've spoken to lots of clinicians that and rehab professionals that work in brain injury rehab services, and they've spoken to me lots about their concerns around um, vulnerability, risk of exploit- exploitation, and also reputation management for people who might be using social media after their injury. And um, as rehab professionals, we can often act as like gatekeepers essentially and so in our clinical context there's lots of focus on our duty of care to try and prevent harm so we can be really risk averse Mm -hmm. essentially um and so there's this real sense of responsibility for a person's vulnerability and and the risks of being exploited online and as clinicians we really want to minimize that risk right but um some of the risks I suppose involve like people getting really fixated on social media use um, and that may also like exacerbate cognitive fatigue. Um, I've spoken a little bit about, you know, the negative mental health or emotional effects that can occur. Um, Some clinicians are are really concerned about people actually withdrawing from those in-person interactions because they're spending lots of time online. Um, obviously reputation management's a a big issue in this whole idea of appropriate and inappropriate (laughs) posting, you know, and maybe messages really negatively affecting their relationships now or in the future and like employment opportunities in particular. Um, so they're really concerned that people might regret things that they've posted, um, particularly if someone is, um, in those very early stages after brain injury, they might be in post-traumatic amnesia and -hmm. and they may regret things that they've posted, um, for example. There's also, like, these concerns about um, managing finances and and their security um, in terms of a little bit of inhibition and impulsivity that can occur after a brain injury as well. Um, But clinicians also... Just sort of told me that they felt really quite lost I suppose when it comes to social media mm-hmm. and so some people engaged on social media themselves others kind of didn't and if they did they only felt really comfortable with maybe a couple of platforms um not everything and so you know they didn't have a lot of confidence to be able to support people in unfamiliar platforms and things like that uh Some of them also sort of saw social media as just kind of a bit of fun and it's like distracting from real life and real-life interactions and they weren't really um, maybe aware of the potential benefits that people could could access in terms of using social media. So a lot of them were really uncertain because there's lots of constant change in the social media space as well, so they weren't sure how to stay up to date up-to-date and things like that. Um, but, yeah, they they really felt like they had a, a lack of control or knowledge of the boundaries around being a gatekeeper kind of thing. So, you know, they were really concerned about medical legal responsibilities and they really wanted some guidance and, and rules to follow, like when to introduce using social media and when to let go of their control kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And how to really encourage positive social media use and things like that. Um, so, because they were so uncertain, most of the time in clinical practice, they were really reactive. And that potentially was mostly really restrictive in the initial phases after a brain injury as well. So, for example, um, clinicians might encourage or help families to keep devices at home, away from people. Um, they might limit internet connectivity or manage the privacy settings so that people can only, you know, watch and observe and and can't post themselves. So really fine tuning those settings or even just deleting apps, things like that. So it's very restrictive. Um, and then once They kind of allowed social media, they only kind of really responded to issues as they happened. So it was quite a reactive thing Um, and they were really quite protective in in the way that they then navigated that. So, um, for example, using sort of a a stop, think, post kind of concept um, and giving people examples of what appropriate social media posts might look like right um so that they could refer to them and and kind of look at their own posts and things like that um but some clinicians actually also told me that their family members or partners were checking and monitoring social media use which isn't ideal for anyone and like it can create even more barriers to use and just autonomy like if i was Um, If I imagined myself um, in my 20s and my mum was monitoring my social media posts, it would create a divide between us that probably didn't need to be there. Um, So on the flip side, though, these rehab clinicians actually really wanted to be more proactive. They really wanted to support social media use. It's just they didn't really know how to do that. They didn't want to be a gatekeeper. like They they didn't know how not to be. They wanted to be more proactive and supportive um, because they really felt that restriction wasn't the answer because it, it doesn't set them up for real life. And it was actually really quite nice because they also acknowledged that their idea of appropriate is probably going to be different to that person with brain injury, right? And it's going to be different to that person's mum or their friend. We all have different ideas of what's appropriate and and it's tricky to navigate that. So even though they weren't sure how to do it, they wanted to be more positive and proactive. Um and they did suggest some ideas. And so one of the the really good ones um I thought was that they um said that, well, why don't we harness the knowledge and skills of that person with a brain injury or their families and friends to kind of help us as clinicians to know more about how to use the platforms that they're interested in. And so it could be a way to continuously educate ourselves and support access and, you know, learn together because then that person with a brain injury is really a hugely active participant in the rehab team moving forward. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, which is just good practice anyway, including people wherever we can. Yeah. 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 Well, look, I think that leads us quite nicely to talk about some of the solutions to some of these barriers that your research has found.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously being proactive rather than reactive is a really great start Um, and kind of in order to move from being in that role of a gatekeeper to more of a a supporter, we need to find the right balance of guidance. Mm -hmm. And so we really need, you know, policy, education, resources, support people, you know, um, to make that happen. Uh, So, you know, following my PhD, I kind of realised that we needed specific guidance in how to address social media use during rehab. And so um, I spoke about those five factors that influence social media use before. Um, actually came up with some facilitators to guide those initial conversations and setting goals for its use during rehab. And so, for example, you know, when we're we're looking at purpose for using social media, uh, it's really important to just simply identify the digital systems that people use um, that are really personally meaningful to them. So just talk to them someone about which social media platforms they use or which ones they may want to use and talk about that with the person, their family and friends, and talk about which ones they prefer to use and why they want to use them. And that's like a great starting point to then launch into, oh, okay, well, let's look at that particular platform and and figure out uh, what are your strengths? What are the things that you're struggling with? How can we support you in making this work for you? Um, If we were looking at the networks of someone to really support their inclusion in online spaces, I mean, really, it's just discussing their online social networks and creating a map of their connections. So thinking about who they communicate with regularly or who did they used to connect with um, and then talk about who they want to interact with now. And maybe in the future. So, um, yeah, I think there's there's lots of different ways that we can start.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting thought as well. I'm reflecting a little bit about um, as somebody with a chronic illness, the the support that exists in those online spaces as well is something that potentially you wouldn't necessarily know was there if you weren't somebody that was going and looking for those support avenues. And, And I know that for me being able to go in there and go oh there are people that are having similar conversations and sharing resources it's been a really useful exercise to to know it's out there and be great to be able to share that with the um, service users that we work with as well absolutely yeah Um, All right, so if somebody wanted to start working towards prioritising social media literacy or having somebody have the ability to access social media um, safely with the people that they work with, where do you recommend they start? Yeah,
1: I mean, I'd simply recommend that you start with talking about purpose. Um, I think that's really um, probably my main focus from the outset. Like, there's no point using a social media platform if, if there's no why attached to it so I'd, I'd start with that why do you want to use social media which platforms are you interested in and what do you want to get out of using social media and that can really help guide the rest of your conversation um I've actually published a research article in AJSLP that actually provides a list of all of these suggested facilitators for each of the five factors to try and make it really accessible for clinicians to use in in their practice. So we can kind of use it as an evidence-based practice guide. Um, If people wanted um, some more practical resources, we've also built um, social ability training. And so this is some free training on how to use social media after a brain injury that myself and some colleagues at the University of Sydney, University of Technology, Sydney and also Brain Injury Australia uh, worked on. And we collaboratively built this with people with brain injuries and family members and clinicians to kind of design a program for people to work through. Um, And they can do that by themselves or or with a family member or a friend or a clinician. And essentially the Social Ability Program uh, covers the basics of what social media is how to use it, how to stay safe and, and who to connect with. So um, I can provide the link to that that for free and and have a look around and and be a really helpful resource.
0: Great. We'll make sure that that's in the show notes so that it's right there for people. Um, All right. So we've talked a little bit about resources. Are there any others that you would point people towards at this stage?
1: I mean, yeah, there's, three key resources that I'd recommend people check out if they want to know more about supporting people to use social media. Um, the first one I'd recommend is actually the eSafety Commissioner website. They have lots of advice and resources on staying safe online. And some there's actually some really great resources for kids in particular. And they've also created an eSafety guide And this is a really great resource for everyone to learn about the different types of social media, uh, including, like, the latest games and apps. And it's actually got specific guidance for each um, particular platform on how to protect your information and report harmful content and things like that. Um, So that would be my first top tip. Uh, The second resource I'd recommend is um, the cyber ability training. And so this is free training on how to stay sort of scam safe after a brain injury. And this resource has actually been designed by colleagues at Monash University led by Dr. Kate Gould and they They've really worked in collaboration with people with brain injury who have lived experience of being scammed themselves to develop this training. So it really comes from their experiences and what they've found has really worked. And um, part of that is also talking about the silver linings that can come from negative experiences, which is really quite beautiful. Um, And obviously the third resource is, as I mentioned before, Social Ability, which is our um, free training program on how to use social media after a brain injury. Um, But the other thing that we're in the process of developing at the moment is actually a social media communication assessment tool. Uh, So watch this space. Hopefully we'll be able to make that freely available for people to use in the near future as well.
0: Yeah, we'll have to have you back on to talk a little bit about that when it's up and running.
1: I'd love that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: All right, well, before we let you go, do you have any take-home messages that you'd like people to come away from today with?
1: Yeah, look, I'm really hopeful that this maybe piques people's interest into exploring addressing social media in, you know, um, working with people in their clinics or hospitals and things like that. I think you know, it's really easy to get stuck on all of the risks and barriers um, and be in that really reactive phase. But hopefully I've enticed people to to start thinking a bit more proactively and um, certainly provided a few resources to help people to do that. Thanks so much.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today and make sure you tune in next time for our next conversation. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.